I'll ask if you could, uh, could stand uh, one more time, please, as we read our scripture for this morning uh, from Matthew 6, verse 11. But I'm going to read from, uh, from verse 5 all the way to the end of the chapter because it's really helpful things for us to understand in that whole passage. Matthew 6, verse 5. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the, as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. It is not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up treasures for yourselves, treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in earth, or sorry, in heaven rather, where neither moth, moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for he either will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body and what you put on. Is not your life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Be not of more value than they, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither spit, neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray one more time together. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you, for you are indeed our Father. 
Lord, you indeed are the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Lord, you never change. You are trustworthy yesterday and today and forever. And so, Lord, as we think from this verse how you teach us to pray for our needs, for our daily provision, Lord, I pray that you would help us to grow in the understanding of our dependence on you. Lord, that we would grow in our relationship with you and also with our brothers and sisters. And, and Lord, that, that we would even seek to, to generously give to others out of the abundance that we have received. Lord, I pray that, that you would work in our hearts this morning. This is our greatest need at the moment, that you would help us, Lord, to understand these things. Lord, that you would help our lives to be changed by these things so that we can glorify you as we ask you to provide this day for our daily bread. In Jesus' name we pray. Well, Self-reliance is a natural effect of our fallen state, but it so easily creeps back into our thinking and even becomes our default without even becoming aware of it. And praying Give us this day our daily bread is a corrective against this kind of thinking. With Matthew 6.11, having established the priority of praying for God and His glory in the first half of the model prayer, Jesus now transitions into the second half, now focusing on the needs of men and women. Now, some in church history have been uncomfortable with the fact that that we should pray to God for merely physical needs. And so they over-spiritualize this petition, suggesting that it refers to the bread of the Lord's Supper, or, or the bread of the celebration that we will have with Christ in eternity. And we really shouldn't be surprised that God would call us to pray for our daily provision. That interpretation that has been used to over-spiritualize it really fails to take into consideration that the Father's provision for our physical needs is a recurring theme in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. We, we saw several times how, how Jesus taught us that our provision comes from our Father. So we should seek Him in prayer. In fact, with these final three petitions in this latter half of the model prayer, Jesus is really teaching us to pray for all of our needs, physical and psychological and spiritual. In the first half of the prayer, we're taught to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then with, with then all of these things will be added to you, Matthew 6. 33, and, and so this is not a ban against seeking provision for our physical needs, and especially against seeking them, but sorry, but it is instead a ban against seeking them above our spiritual needs. Jesus is not saying it's, it's wrong to seek your spiritual needs from God. He's saying it's, or, it's your physical needs from God. Rather, he's saying that it's wrong to seek first for the provision of your physical needs. He's also saying that, that, we should, that we should be seeking first God and His kingdom for, for everything. 
And remember, if we think about the first half of this prayer, we're, we're grounding our prayer in seeking first that God's name be hallowed and that God's kingdom would come and that His will would be done. And only then, in the second half of the prayer, are we beginning to pray for, for us. The first half of the prayer is, is all about God and what He wants. And then we begin to focus on ourselves. But, but we've talked about this before. It's... I know personally that, that in my own prayer life, my, my, natural, my natural way of praying is to, to launch immediately into the things that I need or, or that my loved ones need. But Jesus here is teaching us to have things in the right perspective, to have things in the right balance. And so as, as Thomas Watson reminds us, God's glory ought to weigh down all before it. It must be preferred above our dearest concerns. So when we ask God for, our, for our, the provision of our needs, with, with God and His glory at the forefront of our minds, we're still seeking that God's name would be hallowed. We're still seeking that His kingdom would come. We're still seeking that His will will be done. God will provide for His children. As we saw in the petition for God's will to be done, God's providential will will be done. And yet we are taught to pray nonetheless. Again, we're dealing with the apparent paradox of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Someone once asked C.H. Spurgeon how you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. He said, you don't. You don't need to reconcile friends. They work together. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are seen throughout the scriptures, even in the very same verse. J.I. Patrick helpfully explains, he says, that the prayer of a Christian is not an attempt to force God's hand, but the humble acknowledgement of helplessness and dependence. When we are on our knees, we know that it is not we who control the world. It's not in our power, therefore, to supply our needs by our own independent efforts. Every good thing that we desire for ourselves and for others must be sought from God and will come, if it comes at all, as a gift from His hands. But in this, this simple petition, these, these, these few words in Matthew 6, 11, Every word is rich with meaning. So what we're going to do this morning is, is we're just going to, going to walk through this petition and, and we'll have four points. And we're going to spend the, the majority of our time on, on the first point. On the first point. And, and it's really just these the, the main words of, of this petition. Give us this day our daily bread. Those are our four points. We're going to focus, first of all, on on this, this first petition, give. This first aspect of the, peti of the petition, give. We see in, in all these words that, that this is a prayer that God will provide. And even more, that it's a, it's a prayer confessing our dependence, our complete and utter dependence on God. And it's really a prayer that develops our relationship with Him. And, and so let's, let's think about, uh, about these four things. But first of all, Give. Again, this is where we're going to spend most of our time. When you study God's Word, you need to focus 
mainly on the verbs. You need to focus on the verbs because that's where the action is, literally, in the verbs. And as you focus on, on the verb here, give, you need to see, first of all, who is being addressed. Who is this, this request to? This is a request to God to give. And on the face of it, it looks like this is actually a command, but, but this is really the, in the, the form of, of all prayers, or many prayers throughout the scriptures take this form. This is, this is a request a request made to God, the sustainer and the creator of all things. He is the holy, infinite, eternal God. He is holy. He is set apart from his creation and, and above all and separate from all that is profane. He's infinite. Heaven and earth cannot contain him. He's eternal, with, with no beginning and no end. He is, he is unchanging forever and ever and ever. And if you're praying through the model prayer as it was intended to be prayed, your mind will be grounded on these things. Because you've already been praying these things from the first half of the petition. If you're praying through the prayer, prayer as it was intended, it is, it is only here again, halfway through the prayer, that your, your thoughts begin to, to, to drift towards yourself and your needs. If you're praying this prayer as it was intended, then this petition and the ones that follow, again, are grounded in what you just prayed with the previous petition, your will be done. And so you're asking God to work but, but grounded in the fact that ultimately you want His will to be done above your will. You're praying the model prayer as, as it was intended. You also remember that you are not just praying to some far-off, uninterested deity. To some unloving, small-g God out there somewhere. to your Father in Heaven. Now we have many parents and babies with babies in this church and, and many others who, who have, have raised children that are now adults. But just think for a moment about how dependent a baby is. Think about how dependent a baby is. Now those with grown children might be thinking that, that they're still dependent as well. But, but with that aside, just think about the babies. They can't feed themselves. They can't clothe themselves. They can't change their own diapers, even though that would be nice. They can't do anything for themselves. In fact, even probably till at least the age of two, a child is really helpless. They can't do anything for themselves. And I'm not advocating this, but if, if you were to, to take a, a one-year-old and plop him in the middle of just about any environment, just about anywhere in the world, if you were to just plop that, that child in with, with, no, with offering no care, that child would not last very long in pretty much any environment. But even, even 
two-year-olds, even a two-year-old who, who really feels so independent, really is still dependent on his or her parents. The same is true for us. We feel independent. We, we feel like we can do it on our own. We, we feel that, that we can, can make it and we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we can provide for our own needs, but we are just as dependent on that infant. We're completely dependent on God. So you say that, that you're the one who, who earned the money to buy the food, or well, who gave you the cognitive ability to do your job? Who gave you the physical coordination? Who gave you the body? Who even gave you the very breath in your lungs that enables you to survive beyond a couple of minutes? You are utterly and completely dependent at all times on God. Even far more than, than loving parents care for their children, your Heavenly Father cares for you. That fact is, is reinforced three more times in this chapter, and then again in chapter 7, verses 7 to 11. I, I hope you heard this as I read through it. Look, look back at verse 8. Back at verse 8. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus is emphasizing that, that you are talking to your father. As we, we talked about when we looked at, at the first at the introduction of this, Our Father in Heaven, that this was, was really radically a new thing for these people to understand that, that God was their Father. What Jesus was, was teaching them here was, was completely foreign to the religion of the Pharisees. Jesus was inviting people into the, the relationship that He has with His Heavenly Father so that by Him, we can call Him, we can call Him our Father. Now jump down to verse 26. Your heavenly Father feeds the birds. Well, follow the logic here. Since your Father provides for mere birds, surely He is going to provide for you. He is not, he's not the Father of birds. He's your Father in Christ. Look down at verse 32. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. He knows you need food. He knows you need clothing. He knows you need shelter. He knows you need shelter. He knows you need water. And so you can trust Him. And then down at verses, or chapter 7, verses 7 to 11. You're told to ask and seek and knock, trusting that your Father in heaven will give good things to those who ask Him. So you're going to your Father, to a loving, heavenly Father, and He will provide for you. So yes, you, you are to pray, asking your Father, give us this day our daily bread, but bread here is not the ultimate objective. Now, if you're hungry and and you don't know where your, meal, your next meal is coming from, there is going to be a sense of urgency when you pray this petition. 
we've already talked about George Mueller and his, his 300 orphans and, and the way that, that they sat down at the table to, to eat breakfast when, and, and George Mueller thanked God for the food even though the, the cupboards were bare and the table was empty. And then there was a knock on the door and, and it was the baker and the, the Lord had woken him up and prompted him to make extra bread for, for the orphans. And so he supplied this, this bread for these children and then, then just after that there was a, another knock on the door and it was, it was the milkman whose the wheel had broken from his milk cart in front of the orphanage and, and he said this milk is going to spoil, it might, shouldn't go to waste. So, so he gave them ten big cans of milk which was enough to, to give milk to those 300 orphans. George Mueller prayed that God provided. This morning, as, as you sit here, are you experiencing financial strain? And it might not be anywhere near <coughs> in the position that, that George Mueller was, but it's still hard. Financial difficulty is still hard. Are you entrusting this trial to your father's care? Or what other means do you have to trust your father with? Illness? Relational strain? Something else? Go to your father and trust him, submitting your will to his. Here's where we need to go a little bit deeper. Now, I understand that in the midst of a trial, that getting out of the trial is, is often high on the list of, of your priorities. I understand that. Believe me, I understand that. But is getting out of the trial your highest priority? Is that illness or a financial problem or relational strain or, or other trial is, is getting out of that trial your greatest concern? Let me ask you another question. Is it God's greatest concern? Is it God's highest priority? I'll tell you right now, it's not. Now again, I'm not saying that these things aren't important to God. We just sharing an amazing testimony of God's provision. He really is our Father, and He really does provide for His children. But God has another priority for you. That you will be glorified. That He'll be glorified in you as you are sanctified, as you are transformed into the image of Christ through that very trial. You can see this repeatedly in the Scriptures. We come back to this again and again because it is, it is very important that you understand this. One of my main jobs as a pastor is to prepare you for suffering. Because suffering is a necessary part of this life. But if your priority is, is not the same as, as God's, if you're not seeing what, what God wants to do in the midst of your suffering, you're going to be sorely disappointed. You need to see that God wants to sanctify you. You see this in, in Romans 8, 28-30. Please turn with me there in your Bible. Now, if you're the kind of person that likes to highlight your Bible, then, then this is really one of those passages that you really need to highlight. Romans 8, 28 to 30. And we know that for those who love God, most things work together for good. 
Does, does it say that? No, it says all things. All things work together for good. For who? For those who are called according to his purpose. That those who love God and are called according to his purpose can trust that God is at work in the midst of those trials to sanctify them. And the, the, if you want to know the definition, God's definition of good, look at the next verse, verse 29. For those that who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So these things that, that you're facing, these trials that you're experiencing, are, are under, the, under God's providence, ordained of God to transform you, to make you more like Jesus. Verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And all of these are in the perfect tense. This is, this is something that has happened. And from God's perspective, you are already not just called and justified, but also glorified. And so you can be confident of God's work in the midst of that trial, whatever trial it is that you're facing. And so you can, you can see this also in, just flip back if you're still there in, in Romans chap, chapter 8, just flip back a couple of chapters to, to, to chapter 5. To Romans chapter 5. Verse 3 to 5. Not only that, but we, re we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So again, you see the sanctifying effect of trials. It's also in, in James 1 and, and 1 Peter 1, but I'll let you look those up at home. You need to understand that the trials in your life fellow Christian, are there to help you. They're there to help your will to be conformed to God's. They're, help, they're there to help you to be weaned from this world. They're there to destroy your health, your self-reliance. So God's priority is that you will glorify Him. And so as you pray, your will be done. Pray that God will be glorified by you and that you'll be sanctified through this trial. But now I want to go even deeper. I want to go even deeper. God has another priority for you in the midst of your trial. As you experience need, whatever need that is, whether it be need for bread or health or peace in the home, for any and every need, in your experience of need, God wants you to draw close. Not just to His will, but to Him. God wants you to draw close to Him. And so that's why He's calling you to, to understand and to, to appreciate your dependence on Him every day. Because He wants you to grow in relationship with Him every day. As you pray to your Father in Heaven to provide for, for your needs, do you just see how it, how it draws you close to Him? It causes you to, to, to understand that you need to go to Him with even your most basic 
human needs. It, it causes you to, to reach out to Him, to, to pray to Him for, for what you now realize you can't provide for yourself. And really this is one of the most important reasons why God calls us to pray. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones. This brings us to the heart of the meaning of prayer. We do not tell God these things because He is not aware of them. No, we must think of prayer more as a relationship between father and child. And the value of prayer is that it keeps us in touch and in contact with God. God wants us. And as our Father, He likes us to speak to Him. Now again, remember that all the times that Jesus emphasized that, the, that your Father is the one who is doing the giving five times in this one passage. God wants a relationship with you. And for most of us here in our affluent culture, when it comes to praying for our daily bread, what we really need to pray is to pray to feel our need. When we pray this, we need to, we need to say, God, show me my need. Show me that I'm dependent on you. Now that can be a scary prayer. Because, because God can, can take you to the edge in some of these ways to, to, to reinforce these, these truths in your heart. But when you come out on the other side, and, and even in the midst of it, I know many of you can testify in the midst of, of severe trials, the way that, that God is with you. When, you. when you know that you need Him to provide for you and, you, and you press into Him. I've had many here testify, I've experienced it myself, of, of the way that, that God draws close to you. And you feel that when you are drawing close to Him, you can say it's worth it. Even the severe pain of whatever it is you're experiencing is worth it. So you need to feel your dependence. And, and so you pray to your Father, give us this day our daily bread. He wants you to seek first, not the gift, but the giver. He wants you first to seek Him. I really hope that this floors you. I really hope that, that this is really is, is a radical thought in your mind that, that the God of this universe wants to have a relationship with little old you. The self-sufficient, triune God who dwelt in eternal and perfect love between Father and Son and Holy Spirit calls you his child. And he calls you into his presence. He's welcomed you into that triune relationship. Isn't that amazing? Although your father knows your every need, and he knows your every need even more than you know it, he delights to hear your prayers. Your Father is pleased when you come to Him, saying, give us this day our daily bread. Now, is there any doubt this morning as you sit here, is there any doubt in your mind that relationship with you is one of God's highest priorities for you? 
just think about how much his relationship with you cost. It cost him the death of his son. That's how much your father wants the relationship with you. You can trust your father because he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Understand that your father is the giver and that he wants to provide for you and he wants you to know that he is the one who is providing for you. Understand that your father wants you to glorify him as he sanctifies you and as he, as he draws you into a deeper relationship with him. This is going to feed your prayers, which in turn will feed you in every way that matters. So with that in mind, let's quickly look at the other parts of this petition. We looked at give, and now let's consider us. Jesus does not teach us to pray here, give me my daily bread, but give us our daily bread. These pronouns are, pronouns are plural. It's the same is true throughout the model prayer. It's, it's not my father, but our father. It's not forgive me, but forgive us. It's not lead me, but lead us. It's not deliver me, but deliver us. Our prayers are not to be selfish. We're not just seeking provision for our own needs, but also for those needs of others. Here, Herman Witsius. As the word our is plural, it denotes a fellowship of love by which every believer prays not only for himself, but for all the members of his family, for other believers who are his brethren, for all men without exception, that they may enjoy the necessities of life. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying with this petition, we, we, don't, we, we do pray for ourselves, but we also pray for our family, for our church family, for our brothers and sisters around the world, and even for unbelievers in the wider world that God will provide for them. Do you realize that you might be the answer to that prayer for someone else? Your first priority is to your family, 1 Timothy 5.8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Are you praying for the needs of your family? Are you working hard to provide for the needs of your family? Your next priority is for the church, Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are the household of faith. So yes, it is especially for those of the household of faith, but it's for everyone. We're to do good to, for everyone. And Ephesians 4.28 says this too, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So implicit in this prayer is a commitment to share what we receive with others. Philip Reichen asks, how can we pray, give us this day our daily bread, and then refuse to provide what the rest of us need? This is a vitally important concept in the New Testament. James 2, 5, sorry, James 2, 15 to 17. The brother or sister 
is poorly clothed or lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Also 1 John 3.17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And there you're seeing the priority, especially for the church. We need to understand that the Hunger is not ultimately a physical problem, but a spiritual problem. There is more than enough food to go around. But people often go hungry because of laziness, because of greed, because of oppression, because of violence. Proverbs 13.23 says, The fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but is swept away through injustice. We need to be clear, though. This is not a blank check. Yes, we have a responsibility to provide for others. But as we're told in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So you need to be careful that, that you are, in, for your own provision, that you're working hard to provide for it. But we also need to be careful when it comes to others and their needs that we're not charging someone with laziness in an attempt to justify our own greed. I think it's safe to say that when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, this includes asking for love and for wisdom for the best way to use the resources that God provides to, for ourselves, for our loved ones, and also for the wider community. So God calls you to pray, give us this day our daily bread to also promote Christian fellowship and to help you to reflect Jesus by selflessly loving others. This day, this aspect of the prayer reinforces that this dependence is for each day. When Jesus first preached this sermon, he was speaking to a group that was made up predominantly of common people, and, and the majority of the common people in that day were day laborers. They were, they were paid each day at the end of that day's work. If they didn't work, they didn't eat. In that day, there, there was no sick leave, no insurance, no EI, no welfare. But this would have also made them more likely to acknowledge their daily dependence on God for all things. So now here, 2,000 years later, we need to be reminded that when it comes to asking for our daily bread, we're still asking God to give. Now most of us here have stocked fridges and stocked cupboards. Even if, if those things weren't there, we would still have the social safety net. In my opinion, this means that we need to pray this prayer even more than those who don't have those things. Let me explain what I mean. The affluent, and, and by worldly standards, by world standards, all of us here are affluent. We easily forget that it is the Lord who provides our daily bread every bit as much as he does for the needy. And most of us have so much bread that we don't pray for it. So Jesus teaches us to pray like this, give us this day our daily bread. When we pray, we're, we're, we're going to, to a God who, who knew hunger. When, when Jesus fasted in, in the wilderness, remember the devil came to him 
tempting him. This was, was a time when, when Jesus was, was hungry and was, was physically weak. And, and Satan tempted him, saying, command these stones be made bread. What did Jesus say to him? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth, O God. And so Jesus, in, in the midst of his physical hunger, was still focusing ultimately on God and on his need for God. Now we need to be careful that, that when, we, when we look at this and we, we talk about praying for, for, for this, this day's bread, we need to be careful that, that, we, that we are, are still wise in the management of our finances. This is not an injunction against, against saving. James Boyce makes the, the, the valid point that uh, that this application, the application of this sermon or this message is different in our culture where the needs of the future are often met through financial planning and saving. In our society, part of this day's ration, Boyce says, consists of the money to be laid aside for the next. And so consequently, we're not to neglect our families by neglecting insurance policies, pension plans, or savings accounts. He says to do that would be to misinterpret Christ's teaching here. Proverbs 13.22 says, The good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. So, so it's, it's, not, it's not a problem with, with saving, but it's a reliance on those things that is wrong. If you remember the, 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 the story that Jesus told about the rich man and, and Lazarus, and the, the rich man had... had had an abundance, so he said, well, I'll build more barns. And then what happened? He was told, your life is required of you, and, and at, that, at that moment, he died and went to eternal torment. And he was called a fool, because he was just focusing on accumulating more wealth. So this is a prayer that the Father would provide, but it is also a prayer that reminds us that we need God to provide every day. And it's also a prayer that, that helps us to develop and maintain our relationship, not just with God, but with our brothers and sisters and with those who are in need. And finally, let's look at our daily bread. And we live in a culture where bread has fallen on hard times. So many people complain of, of issues with gluten. I like to call that lactose intolerant. <laughs> but if you travel around the world, bread is a staple. Whether it's a pita or naan or bagels or tortillas or crumpets or rice cakes, bread is a main component of the diet of people all around the world. This was certainly true for the people that first heard this sermon in Jesus' day. In his day, bread was a staple. It, it formed a main part of the meal. Every day, Jewish mothers would, would heat up the, the stone oven and, and would, would use whatever, whatever material they could find as fuel to burn, and they would make bread every day. They'd make enough bread for that day, and, and the bread wasn't full of, of preservatives like our bread is today, and so the bread would really only last for that day. Every day they would make enough bread for that day. And, and this would have been in the minds of those who, who were listening. I think of my grandmother. And uh, living in Newfoundland, they had a, they had a wood stove. That was, that was the only, only stove that, that they had. And, and she, she would, would, 
every morning before people got up, you know, the, the fire would be hot, and, and when, you, when you walked into the, the room, you could smell the bread baking. And I don't know how she did it on a wood stove, but every single loaf was perfect. And I could still smell that in my mind. I haven't had to smell my grandmother's bread for many years. But, but bread here, when, when Jesus is praying, this really represents food in general. In fact, it really represents all of our, our physical needs. Everything that is necessary for our lives in this world. Not just food, but water and shelter and clothing and health and government and peace. And we could also include spouse and children on that list. You know, for many years, I, I prayed that God would provide me with a wife. Many years. And I'm sure that, that at times I felt like it was a need. But obviously it wasn't a daily need until the Lord determined that it was a daily need. And then I met Jane. I wonder, are there things that, that you are seeking from the Lord that you consider to be needs, but are actually wants? Are there things that, that you consider to be a need, but is actually a want? Now, having wants isn't, isn't necessarily wrong, provided that it's submitted to the petition, your will be done. Just come with me for a moment, please, to, to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, your passions that are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot, cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you spend it. You ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So when you're asking for the things that, that you consider to be needs, are you asking for them selfishly? for yourself or because you want your will to be done? Or are you submitting your need and, and, and felt need under the sovereignty of God and under the, the supreme will of God? You know, we live in a culture where obesity is more of a concern than hunger. When we ask our Father, give us this day our daily bread, we're asking also to be satisfied with the amount that we need. Nothing more. It's also a prayer for contentment. Proverbs 38b and 9 communicates this aspect of the petition. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you, and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. It's, it's a prayer to ask for just enough. Not to be rich, but to have enough. We're warned in Scripture that the desire to be rich is a snare. 1 Timothy 6, 8-10 If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. And that's part of the reason why the prosperity gospel is so dangerous. Because it feeds people's desire, that their natural fleshly desire to be wealthy. It puts a Christian spin on it. But it's a temptation. It's a snare that causes people even to wander away from the faith. 
Now again, we, we need to have a caveat there. Wealth is not necessarily a bad thing. James isn't, or, um, Paul didn't say there that, that money is the root of all kinds of evil. He says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money can be a good thing. It can be a very good thing if it's, if it's used for ultimately for God and His glory. And again, we are affluent in this culture. We need to say, Lord, the things that I have are not mine. They have been given to me by you. How would you have me use all the abundance that you've given me for your glory? <coughs> Saying it's yours, God. Use it as you please. May your will be done. Just think for a moment about, about the generosity of God. In, in all that he provides. He, he, he doesn't just make food boring. Imagine if, if all food tasted like styrofoam or tofu. Just think about the variety of foods you've eaten over the past week, the textures and the, the flavors and the colors. Think about an egg or a banana or an orange. These foods that, that God has made in, in individual portions with their own wrapping. <laughs> Just think about, about a steak, chicken, salmon on the grill. God has made all of these things to be enjoyed by his people. And think about the, about the, the, the spices and, and the sweets, so, so honey and salt and, and, and mustard and mint and cinnamon, all these different tastes that God made, and it just shows how intimately concerned God is as, as a generous father to give good things. The gardeners here have had the pleasure of, of planting seeds, of watching young plants grow and, and producing fruit and having it slowly ripen on the vine and then, and then picking, say, a, a juicy red tomato from the, from the vine and slicing it and putting it on a freshly grilled burger. The hunters here understand that, the, the, that they have, have they've had the experience of being able to go to the bush and to, to spot a buck in the distance and to be able to draw a bead and to take down that buck and then, and then to prepare the meat and then to, to cook it up and to enjoy it. But whether it's a gardener or, or a hunter, they're not the ones that produce the food. For gardeners, remember, God is the one who, who gave the seeds. God is the one who gave the minerals in the soil. He is the one who provided the sunshine and the rain that caused that plant to grow. He's the one that gave you the ability to be able to pick it and to be able to taste it and to enjoy it. Or, or for hunters, the, the skill that, that you have to be able to aim that gun and, and to shoot it straight and, and to be able to, to know how to, how to prepare that meat, it is, it's from God for you to enjoy and, and so when you think about these things, when, when you, you put these, on, these things on the table, remember who it is that gave them to you. Now maybe you don't get your hands dirty in the provision of your food. But God has provided you with employment. He, he's provided you with the mental and physical capacity to be able to do your job. He's provided others who would get their hands dirty so you can get that food on your plate. And so we pray Give us this day our daily bread. 
wilderness. As they wandered through the wilderness, they weren't able to, to bake bread because it was a time-consuming process. But every morning, God provided manna that, that came down like dew on the ground. And it was, this, it was, it was described as being like bread. It was a, a, a light flaky thing. And, and the people would go out and gather it. And we're told that those who gathered little had no lack. And, and that those that gathered much had nothing left over. And, and how on the day before the Sabbath, they were to gather double. So they wouldn't have to work on the Sabbath. And that, that those who, on other days when people gather too much, they'd find that the next morning would be full of worms. God provided their food for that day. And this would have been in the front of the minds of those people who were hearing this sermon. God's provision of our daily bread doesn't just point to our material needs, but to our needs to God for all things, even to our spiritual needs. Now, I don't want to over-spiritualize this, but Matthew 6 should remind us of John 6. Just turn with me there for a moment, please, before we close. Matthew 6 should remind us of John 6, where, where Jesus feeds the 5,000. Look down at verses... 32 to 35. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You're sitting here this morning as one who has, has gone to God for your ultimate needs, for your spiritual needs. Have you gone to Christ for salvation? There is salvation in no other name. Do you understand that He is the very bread of life for you? And as one who has gone to Him for spiritual food, you can trust that surely He will provide for you in your natural, physical food. So you can pray, give us this day our daily bread and be confident that your Father in heaven will provide. Let's pray.